Tonight we're going to be in Acts chapter 26, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, Acts 26. Lord, tonight we um, have taken this time and set it aside to worship you with song and with some prayer and bring our kids, if we have any, and um, but also for ourselves, that we might be encouraged and strengthened, but also instructed. So we pray that the gift of teaching is in operation tonight, that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit, help me to share what it is that you placed um, on my heart and that it would come out clearly and in a way that's understandable. We pray that you give us direction as Aaron prayed, that you give us wisdom and understanding of uh, especially Paul and how you worked through him and how you want to work through us. And uh, we thank you for this example that he sets before us tonight in this chapter 26 of just sharing from his heart his testimony and um, in front of a king and how nerve-wracking that would be for most of us. But for him, it was, he was serving a higher king to a lower king. And um, because he understood that, Lord, it just seemed to help things flow a little bit easier. So we pray that tonight, that you give us the boldness to speak when asked, and uh, that we give a reason for the hope which lies within us. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul is at the Praetorium still waiting for transport to Rome. He's uh, petitioned to see the Caesar, to go before him and to make his case there, because he feels like this should have been handled already. He shouldn't be in prison, that uh, the decision should have been made, and, and he's right. Festus has kept him there under lock and key because he's hoping for a bribe and also because he wanted to do the Jews a favor. But now he feels like he's got a hot potato on his hands. He doesn't know what to do because now that Paul has triggered the appeal, he has to come up with charges because he doesn't have any. So Agrippa and Bernice have come, and Agrippa's considered the king, and, uh, and Festus is considered a governor of some kind, not really that important, but kind of important, kind of Rome's emissary. Um, but so Agrippa is being asked of Festus, can you find some charges in this guy? Because I've got to turn him over to Caesar, and it's going to look really bad if I say, I've got this prisoner, but I don't know what to do with him. Could you plead his, you know, hear his case? There is no case. So he's hoping to get a solution. He doesn't, by the way, tonight get a solution to his problem. But what he does get is a very hilarious verse 32, which we'll get to eventually, um, which is like a sinking feeling must come over Festus as he hears this from Agrippa. So verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. So he's been brought in front of Bernice and Agrippa. They've come in with great pomp because he's the king and there's an entourage with them. So you got to kind of get the picture. He says, you're permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. Paul's got something up his sleeve here. Paul doesn't do this, you know. I thank you that I get to speak. He doesn't do that kind of thing. He pokes people in the eye, 
but he doesn't do this kind of stuff. Well, what we're witnessing here is Paul's witness. This is what Paul says to everybody. What we're about to read here is Paul's testimony. Again, now we've, we've read it. We've understood how this happened, but Paul is sharing it. He's not trying to get out of charges. He's not trying to get out of jail. He's not trying to do anything. He's sharing his testimony. He's hoping everybody hears. He's going to witness to everybody in the room. So when he says to Paul here, when Agrippa says to him, you're permitted to speak for yourself, it's a little ironic because he's not. He's going to speak for his King Jesus right now. Several times Jesus lets them know, lets the disciples know and everybody know that they're going to be brought into situations like this. I'm going to read a couple examples to you. Matthew chapter 10, verses 18 through 20. Jesus says to the disciples, you will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. He'll do the testimony for you. You just have to make yourself available for it. Be prepared for that. Don't be surprised, shocked, worried as you're sitting in jail. Tomorrow's the big day. No, you just get out there and you get ready. You get ready to open your mouth and I'll fill your mouth with the words that you need to say. It's very comforting for me. Always has been. He says it again in Mark 13, verses 9 through 11. But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You'll be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not be or do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Very comforting. Finally, Luke chapter 21, verses 12 through 19. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. But it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives, friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head shall be lost by your patience, possess your souls. Gives us a lot of details in that one. When you get brought before these guys and kings, and their intent is to charge you and for you to defend yourself, don't pay any attention to any of that noise. That's just noise. This is an occasion for you to testify. This is an opportunity for you to have Caesar's palace, you know, and there you are on the main stage. And you can either spend all night long or all day long or whatever time it is that you get brought before them and say, I didn't do anything wrong. I can prove it. I've got alibis. You could do that. But Jesus says, no, I want you to take this opportunity to testify of me, to talk about me. It isn't going to go well, he says. He's pretty clear in all three of those sections. You're going to get beat. <laughs> You're going to get imprisoned. 
Some of you may even kill you. You're going to be turned over by your parents and by your brothers and by your sisters. This is all going to come about. I want you to know this ahead of time that this is going to happen. But when it does, this is an occasion for you to give your testimony. Paul knows this, I think. Paul's about to do this. Stretches out his hand. King Agrippa. I know that Festus doesn't know this stuff because he doesn't know the scriptures and he's not a Jew. You do. You know these scriptures. You know what I'm about to tell you. You know about a coming Messiah. Festus, he has no clue. What's some Messiah, some resurrection, some savior of some kind? I don't know. Something to do with their religion. That's his view. Agrippa, you know these things. You follow these things. You're looking for a Messiah. I'm here to tell you about him because he's come. Verse 4. My manner of life from my youth which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. I now, or and now, I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our 12 tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raised the dead? He goes right to that. Remember how in the past when he's talking, he waits a while to get to the resurrection. That's when everybody flips the switch and shuts it off. He jumps right to it and says, I'm about to talk about a Messiah who was raised from the dead, but this shouldn't seem incredible to us who follow a God who... King Agrippa, you know very well, does awesome things in the past. You know Genesis. You know how God created the heavens and the earth. You know how he formed us out of mud, breathed life into us, and we became alive. You know all these things. You know about the flood. You know about Noah and how he wiped everything out, but saved eight, and from that eight was able to repopulate the earth. You know this stuff. You know about the Red Sea. You know about the 10 plagues. You understand the Passover, and you celebrate it with everybody. You understand our God does big stuff. It shouldn't seem incredible to you that he raises somebody from the dead. That's very important. These guys know. He knows the story of Isaac being taken up on a mountain and the symbolism that must be going on there. Something strange took place there on this mountain. He knows about Joseph and how he was left for dead, but somehow came out of the pit and was able to come back and save his own brethren. He knows all these pictures. And Paul's going to pull that out of him here, causing him to think these things through. I lived the way a good Jew is supposed to live. In fact, better than you is what he's saying. I was a Pharisee. And that's supposed to. See, for us, we have, as, as Gentiles and as, as a church, we're always like, oh, the Pharisees, boo, bad, you know, oh, the Sadducees, boo. We, and that's true. It's true because they hated Jesus for the most part. But at the time, the Pharisees were the back-to-the-Bible guys. The Sadducees were the liberals. They were the ones saying, there's no resurrection from the dead. There's no life eternal. There's nothing like that. This is all allegory. We still have that going on today in the church. Nothing's really bad. You know, everything done in the flesh is okay because it's spiritual. It doesn't really matter anyway because there's no... It's the strangest bunch of believers I've ever read about is the Sadducees. Never understood them. So when he says, I was a Pharisee, that is supposed to, in King Agrippa you know, raise an eyebrow, basically. Oh, well, you were a Pharisee. And that's why Paul says, and if these guys over here were willing to testify, 
They'd have testified of who I was and what I was like and who I'd. Honestly, Paul is saying, in a sense, I was more religious than all y'all, you know? So I want you to listen because this isn't an incredible story. This is a forecasted story. This is a story that was foretold. This was foreshadowed. This was prophesied about. And every one of us as Jews is looking for this Messiah. It isn't a strange thing that's taken place here. This is normal. What I'm about to tell you is reasonable. It's a reasonable thought and a reasonable idea. This resurrection from the dead in Matthew chapter 19, verses 25 through 26. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? They had just discovered that rich people can't get to heaven unless they know the Lord, unless God does a work. Who then can be saved if rich people can't be saved? We thought rich people went, that's what we've been struggling with with Job, isn't it? Rich people are okay. It's the poor people that have obviously done something to offend God. That thought carries on through still in some form, in some fashion. Who then can be saved? And Jesus said, look, look at them and said, looked at them and said, uh, with men, it is impossible. With God, all things are possible. You can't be saved. It's got to be a work that I do. Now, I tied this into the resurrection because I've got a couple other scriptures that have to do with that, but there's a spiritual resurrection that has to take place in everybody. God has to resurrect people's spirit. He has to bring that back. to How can you get saved? Well, God does it. It's impossible for you to resurrect yourself, but it's not impossible for God to resurrect you. It's totally possible for him. So Jesus said that himself. You can't get saved. I can save you, though. I can do it. You can't help yourself. I can help you. So that is the incredible part of, it's, it's not to be incredible, he just said it shouldn't be an incredible thing. Um, and he means that by the literal term, incredible. It's not credible. It's not possible. Nothing with our God is impossible as we understand Genesis and we understand Noah's flood and we understand the, the exodus taking place. He, he does big things, you know. So when we talk about the resurrection, when God has to make you born again, when God resurrects your spirit, this is a normal thing for him. Jesus even said so, preparing them for that. John chapter 11, verses 14 through 15, speaking of physical death, he he makes a very important statement here with Lazarus. He had just told them it's impossible for men to save themselves, but God can do it. Then Jesus said to them plainly, he said they were sleeping, he was sleeping, and I'm going to go wake him up and do all this. And they're like, well, that's okay. We should probably let him rest. He's sick. He goes, no, it's not what I'm talking about. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. In other words, this raising of Lazarus from the dead is a very poignant moment for you because you need to understand the first thing I said about saving you, I can do that, but you don't believe me, so I'm going to let Lazarus die, and I'm glad I didn't heal him so that he didn't die, because now that he's dead, you're going to see me raise someone from the dead, and that's going to help you, because it ain't about Lazarus. It's going to help you believe what I told you about your spirit, about your salvation. If I can do this, I can do this, is the idea. He tells him flat out, it's a good thing that he's dead. I'm glad he's dead. He's my friend and all, and he's going to weep, and he's going to go through an interesting exchange with Mary and Martha. But the point is, I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, 
that you may believe. Believe what? Believe that I can save you. Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. He told them over and over again that this is going to take place. In fact, at one point, Peter says, not so, Lord, far be it from you. This isn't going to happen, you know. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You have to do, I have to do this. We have to do this. Lazarus had to die. You had to be taught that I could save you. I'm going to go die, and I'm going to get back up again. And it's just another exclamation point on that I can save you. You have to know that. So when Paul stands before King Agrippa here, who knows all these things, not necessarily. I mean, he knows about the way. He knows about the sect of the Nazarene. He knows about Christians out there. He understands that, but he's not one yet. But he is a Jew who is in that valley of decision who has to say, I don't know. Pretty miraculous stuff happening over here, but all the religious rulers are saying, no, that ain't, that ain't right. That, that's not him. That's not the one we're waiting for. So Agrippa's kind of stuck in this valley of decision. What do I do? And Paul's saying, look, what bothers the Pharisees and what bothers the Sadducees and what bothers everybody, it's still the same today, is the resurrection. Agrippa, this is not an incredible thing. This is essential. It's a part of it. Indeed, verse 9, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Yeah, kill them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. You torture people, basically, beating them, punishing them for believing on Jesus until they recanted. Until they denied Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Paul is just, he's giving his testimony. He's not proud of that fact. He's saying, you guys think you're doing a good job at squashing the sect of the Nazarene. You should see what I was doing. I was way ahead of you guys on all these things. I was killing people. I was casting votes. Yep, put them to death. They're problems. They are problems. Kill them. And then I went off with letters in my hand, and I began to persecute everybody. And he starts off with that very first sentence, I myself thought I must do many things contrary. I thought I was serving God by doing this. Jesus warned about that in John 16, 1 through 4. Jesus says to his disciples, These things I have spoken to you, that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of synagogues. Yes, the time will come that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you, that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. He doesn't say there's a way out of this at all. He tells them ahead of time, this is going to happen. But I want to tell you ahead of time, by prophecy, basically, so that when it happens, you remember that I said this, that I knew. And there's something about that, knowing that God knows the hardships we're about to go through. You're going to go through some hardships as a Christian. Well, it's probably one of the most important things we can say to people as pastors or as evangelists or anybody is this is going to be a hard road. You are going to switch from being in the flow with the world to swimming upstream your entire life. 
It's never, ever going to get easier for you. It's only going to get harder for you. As you draw closer and closer to Jesus Christ and the world flows as fast as they can away from him, it is not going to be easier. You're not going to get the hang of it necessarily. You'll be better at making the distinction. You'll be better at making the choices. You'll be better at taking the right road as opposed to the wrong road. But it is not going to be easier in that sense of being accepted in this world. You're going to look worse and worse to them, to the world. Jesus warns them. They're going to put you... Paul's is the fulfillment of John 16, 1 through 4. They're going to think that they do God's service by putting you in jail and killing you. Paul says, I'm that guy. I'm the one who thought I must do things contrary to the name of Jesus. I've got to stop this. That is my mission. That's my calling. I feel like I he felt more monkish, you know, more, more holy by stopping these people that are blaspheming God and not realizing until Jesus, and this is what he's leading up to, knocked him down and said, why are you persecuting me? I didn't know that I was. I didn't think that I was. I really thought, mm. Jesus says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Paul knew, and this is the funny thing about the Lord, it, it, the Holy Spirit. Paul knew he shouldn't be doing it, but he thought he should be doing it. I don't know how else to explain it. Religiously, he thought, I'm doing the right thing. It's hard. I feel like I'm guilty. I feel shame. I feel miserable and angry inside, which isn't what I want and isn't why I follow God. But for some reason, I, this is maybe if I kill more or stop this sect or do something, I can get, I can get past this. You can't. And Paul's trying to explain that to him. And probably trying to explain to everybody else in the room as well. Verse 12, while thus occupied, while I was doing all this, while I was killing people, torturing them, causing them to recant. Can you imagine the guilt and shame you must feel about that? The pictures of their faces of all the people that he made cry so hard or hurt so bad that they said, I, I renounce Jesus. I renounce him as my Lord and Savior. I, I Just don't hurt me anymore. Can you imagine that? what that must feel like and what he must, as he's giving his testimony here. He's not happy about it and he's not boasting about it. He's just trying to say, I've been where you are and then some, and I've discovered the truth. While thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road, I saw light from heaven, brighter than the sun shining around me and those who journeyed with me, and when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, we get a bunch of information from this that we don't get from the actual moment. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand on your feet for I have appeared to you for this purpose to make you a minister Servant is what that means. And a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will reveal to you or will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they might receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Totally gave him the gospel right there. 
in kind of a sideways way. It's just such a great way to do it, you know? Not, I've been sent to you to teach you not to sin anymore and to receive forgiveness of your sins. Not like that. Which he could have done, and there's nothing wrong with that necessarily. I mean, it's a little weird and a little uncomfortable, and I don't know if anybody's ever gotten fruit that way, but maybe they have. He says, no, this is what happened to me. There I was, trying to kill all the Christians, and God knocked me off my horse, and it was Jesus. I found out later on as he said his name. And he says, he's going to send me to be a minister. He's going to, he's going to save me from Gentiles. He's going to save me from Jews. But I'm supposed to minister to these people and tell them that I need to, I'm here to open their eyes, their blind eyes, that they might turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they might receive forgiveness of sins, which everybody in the room knows they need. I'm called to tell everybody that they can get forgiveness for their sins. And that's what God's called me to do. And that's what I'm here to do. He's not necessarily saying, King Agrippa, you need to be forgiven of sins or King Festus or whatever you are, Governor Festus or whatever you are. You need to be forgiven of sins. Bernice, you definitely need to, you know, he doesn't say any of those things. He says, that's what I'm here to do. I'm here to tell everybody that they can read forgiveness of sins. Now, he didn't direct it towards them, but now everybody in the room knows that they have forgiveness of sins from God if they believe on this Jesus, whom Paul preaches. Neat. Paul says, I had to do this. I responded. While I was occupied, as I journeyed, I got this that happened to me, and I'm going to be obedient to that. I'm going to do what he says. I was thinking of Balaam, and this is the one cross It's a long cross-reference, so bear with me as we go through this. But Balaam's an interesting story. Besides the fact that he's in it for the money, if you don't know the story, Balaam's kind of a prophet for hire, so to speak. Not supposed to be, but he kind of has worked it out to where he, he makes a pretty good living from it. And he's been hired by Barak, who's not a believer, not even close, not a Jew at all, not a follower of God, because he's worried about these Jewish people. This Barak's going, there's a bunch of Jews coming out, of, and I, they're like grasshoppers or so many of them. They're everywhere. I got I to gotta fumigate. You know, so I'm going to hire you, Balaam, to come over here and fumigate with God's wrath. You know, just pronounce a curse over them, you know, and make it go away. So the bear, he doesn't understand the faith, doesn't understand God, doesn't understand how these things work. He thinks that he can pay this guy to like give him some kind of, you know, elixir, you know, and pour it over the Israeli people like a heathen and maybe make them go away. You know, um, and there's a lot of people that sell that kind of stuff out there. You know, buy this from us and we'll make your your future bright kind of thing. Well, that's, that's the idea. So Balaam's thinking about it. He says, well, let me pray and see if God wants to curse his people at all. So he prays and God says, no, I don't want to curse the people. Don't go. And that's what he says. It's in Numbers 22, beginning in verse 12. And God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the prince of, Barak, of, of Balak, not Barak, Balak, sorry, go back to your land for the Lord has refused to give uh, me permission to go with you. I can't do it. You guys just got to go away. He said reluctantly. I threw that in there. It doesn't say that, but because he's like, eh, you know, God says I can't do it. Well, they up the price. They try to convince him, and he asks God again, and God finally says, yeah, go. If you're going to go, go, but say only what I tell you to say. And here's what I'm getting at here, and there's why the cross-reference applies. Sometimes God steps into people's lives, Paul being one or Saul at the time, or Balaam, 
and tells them you cannot do what you want to do or you need to do exactly what I tell you. And they obey and they do it. And they do what they're supposed to do, right? That's all Paul's getting at here. And that's what this cross-reference is about is you hear from God. And although the world says this, or maybe your own ministry ideas say this or whatever it is, and God says, no, you're just obedient to it. That's all Paul says he's doing. Look, I was a Pharisee. I thought I was doing the right thing by killing everybody and torturing them and telling them to get away from this Jesus guy and you know, recanting their faith. It turns out I was wrong. And upon further knowledge and further information from God above, I realized I'm doing the wrong thing. So I immediately switched sides because my whole life, Paul's trying to get at, is to just be obedient to God. That's all I want to do. I just want to be obedient to God. And so he showed up and says, you're being disobedient. You're, you're kicking against the goats. You need to go the direction I'm telling you to go. And he says, absolutely. Absolutely. I'll do exactly what you want me. That's all I care about anyway. I think everybody in this room can agree. As hard of a moment as this is for Saul slash Paul, we'd all welcome it if we're going in the wrong direction. I think that's a fair prayer. And it doesn't have to be this extreme. It doesn't have to be that. God, knock me down and blind me if I'm going in the right direction. Better yet... How about I just pray and listen to the Holy Spirit? Because God is saying to him, Jesus is saying to him, I've been poking you with a goad, telling you to go the other direction, and you keep going the other way, and I'm having to chase you back. Say, no. And I've got experience with that now with cows. You know, If you just go where I tell you to go, it's going to be so much easier. You don't have to spaz out all the time. You know, I don't have to have this moment. You don't have to have this moment. None of us have to go through this moment of, extreme encounters with God. One of the prophets says, I want to be guided by your eye, Lord. I don't even want to, I don't even have to hear your voice. I want to be so steadfast looking at your face, God, you know, that when I see you look over there, I look over there. What are you looking at? You know, is that what you, is that where you want to work? Well, I'm going to go over there and I'm going to go do what you told me to do. I'm going to go do that. I want to be guided by your eye that way. That's amazing. I've seen dogs trained like that before. It's pretty incredible. You know, I I think the the, the most trained dogs I've ever seen, I'm sure there's better ones out there, but probably a a police dog or an FBI dog. And you don't even have to really speak commands. You can almost go, and they just go do the stuff they're supposed to do. It's amazing the relationship that the handler has with the dog. And the dog's, Love and wanting to please the you know the, the handler. It's just an amazing combination. And I'm not saying we're dogs. Um, and yet, I guess I kind of am. I want to be that in tune. And God's not our handler. He never calls us that. He calls us friend. He calls us a father. He is our king. But I want to be that attentive to my king that when I see him focused on an area, that's where I want to be and that's where I want to go. And you don't have to talk me into it. And you don't have to knock me down. You don't have to blind me. You don't have to do anything like that. If you just want me to, that's exactly what I want to do. That, uh, that willingness to be obedient. Paul says, I, I did it. I did it. To follow up with the Balaam story. Then the Lord opened the mouth of a donkey later on in verse 28, because he still was pressing to do what he wanted to do. And she, this female donkey, said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Donkey sat down and wasn't going where he wanted him to go, right? And so Balaam starts beating this donkey. So the donkey starts talking to him. God opened his mouth and starts talking back to Balaam. Why are you beating me? 
Balaam said to the donkey, unfazed by the fact that the animal's talking to him, because you have abused me. <laughs> You've abused me? I wish there were a sword in my hand, for now I would kill you. I wouldn't kill a talking donkey. You know, but probably a lot more money in that than this Balak guy, but oh well. So the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden ever since I became yours to this day? Was I ever uh, disposed to do this to you? He said, no. And the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed his head and fell flat on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to stand against you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely I would also have killed you by now and let her live. It doesn't say this, but he probably looked at her and said, sorry, you know. It doesn't have to be this extreme. It doesn't have to be like Paul. You know, Aaron had prayed, God, give us direction in the way that we should go. I don't think that the only reason he gets this loud and, and these stories seem so fantastic to us is because the person isn't interested in doing what God called him to do. Oh, I love the story of Jonah and the fish. It's not a great story. It's about a rebellious prophet who didn't go where God told him to go. Yeah, but a fish. And we spend so much time. We draw pictures of, of Jonah. And look at how he swallowed it. It would have been better if Jonah just went where he's supposed to go. It would have been better if Paul had received the Messiah like Nicodemus received the Messiah. You know? As he came to Jesus by night and says, I want to know more about this. I don't understand what you're talking about. There's, a, there's an easier way. We don't always have to learn the hard way from God. And so Paul's just trying to say that. I had to learn the hard way, King Agrippa. Festus, if you even can understand what I'm talking about. I had to learn the hard way. God had to blind me. God had to knock me down. God had to say, why are you going in the direction I don't want you to go? Make it easy on yourself. Turn. Just turn. Verse 19. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and do works uh, befitting repentance. I was not disobedient. I heard that call. I got blinded. I got my sight back. I immediately started telling everybody about Jesus. I mean, what a switch. I'm going to kill you if you believe in Jesus. No, you really need to believe on Jesus. I mean, that is quite a turn. This is an interesting sight. Let me finish this section, verse 23, down to verse 23, but then I want to come back to 20. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God... To this day, I stand witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and will proclaim light to the Jewish people and the Gentiles. And that's, the, that's his ministry. He just gave the gospel. God said, I'm going to be brought before small people and great people. And guess who I'm in front of today? King Agrippa, this is for you. God said this would happen. I'm not doing anything that the prophets and the law didn't already tell us was supposed to happen. I'm fulfilling the law and the prophets by preaching Jesus because Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets. King Agrippa, this is what you've been looking for. This is why you became a Jew. 
King Agrippa became a Jew because that is the way. He didn't know about the Messiah, but he knew that the Jewish way was the true and living God. He became a Jew. I'm telling you, Agrippa, this is the finishing of that trek, that journey that you're on to find and get close to God. This is it. I'm giving you the answer. Now, I want to go back to verse 20 because it handles a doctrinal problem that we used to have. Some people didn't think that James should be in the Bible because James seemed to contradict Paul. James says it's not by faith only. You need to have works. And that bothered a lot of people who understood that Paul's writings were all about faith and grace alone and faith alone and all these things. Well, this is very important. Paul just taught that God has sent me to the Gentiles and to the Jews that they should repent and turn to God and do works befitting repentance. There needs to be a follow-up. There needs to be an example. So I want to take you through three scriptures here. It's a long one. But it lays out this doctrine for us so we understand that works accompany faith, always. And Jesus taught this. So the problem scripture is James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. This is the controversial one. James is a tough brother. What does it profit, my brethren? These are believers. If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, I have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God? You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O oh foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see then that man is justified by works and not by faith only. And everybody went, oh boy, it's too far, James. No, it's exactly what Jesus says. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? And notice he skips the part that she lied. That's okay. It worked out great. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. He was tired of it. James says, I'm tired of you guys talking about your faith, but you guys don't show that you believe. Your life does not show that you have faith in God. You live the opposite of what you say you believe, and that's not good. And I'm telling you, your faith is dead if you're that person. It's a heavy thing to hear, right? So some people are like, I don't think that should be in the New Testament. Well, here's what Paul taught, and here's what they thought James was contradicting. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's the contradiction, I think. It's not a contradiction at all. What they don't understand is not only is it we're saved by faith, but when we're saved, there is fruit that comes from that. There must be, or it's not real faith. There has to be a change. I don't do the things I used to do because I've been saved, because I have faith, because I believe in Jesus. 
If you say you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins and you've named them and repented of them and said them out loud, but then you go do those sins again, you don't believe what you just said. You don't believe it. Jesus said that this is the way it's got to be. Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee? This is John, but same. Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. There needs to be fruits. If you're here to repent and you're here to get in the water and you're here to get right with God, you better start living your life that way. I'm going to see fruits worthy of your repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. It means nothing. If your life doesn't change, your faith means nothing. It's dead. Luke chapter 6, verses 43 through 45. Jesus tries to give us understanding into this and gives them, and this is consistent with what Paul teaches. It's consistent with what James teaches. It's consistent because it's the Holy Spirit teaching. For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its fruit or by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from bramble bushes. A good man out of the good treasures of his heart bring forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasures of his heart bring forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. There needs to be good fruit. I'm a brand new apple tree for Jesus, then you best have apples. And that's all that's being said here. And so when they say that they contradicted Paul and his teachings, or Jesus even in his teachings, no, Paul says right here, I'm here. I was sent by God. I've been obedient to God to go to Judea and then to Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried and killed me, therefore having obtained help from God. And he goes on to describe what I've already read. I don't mean to read it twice. These things are normal. This is what should have happened, that he should rise from the dead. Now, that's the conclusion of his message. Now, as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, remember, Festus is clueless about Jews, doesn't understand the religion at all, but he understands what's happening right in front of him because he can see Agrippa. I don't know if this is true or not, but something's got to be happening with his posture. There's got to be a change. Something's taking place. He's watching King Agrippa because Agrippa's here to find out what charges we can get against Paul. And this is not what's happening. The case isn't being, we're not talking about riots. We're not talking about arrests. We're not talking about uh, Lysias who arrested him and pulled him and beat up all the guys. We're not talking about anything here. And he's watching Agrippa lean forward in his chair. He's got to be interested. So he stops the thing. Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning has driven you mad. Are you crazy? Are you trying to witness to this guy right here, the king? And he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. What I'm telling you is reasonable and it's truth. For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things, for I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. You know all about this, don't you, King Agrippa? And Agrippa's just sitting there. Listen into this. King Agrippa, 
Do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. He understands too. Now he's thinking about this stuff. And Paul said to him, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, a Christian, except for these chains. And that's his little joke at the end, you know. He's sitting there with his chains. I wish you'd all become Christians. You know, I don't wish this on anybody, you know. When he had said these things, the king stood up, as well as the governor and Bernice, and those who sat with them, big entourage. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, this man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. And here's the punchline, and here's where Festus' face drops and his stomach sinks. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Festus is like, I know. I know I should have let him go. But I wouldn't let him go, and so he had no choice. He cornered, I cornered Paul to try to give me money because I was trying to drum up charges. I was trying to do the Jews a favor and he pulled the trump card on me and said, take me to Caesar. And now I don't know what to do. And this guy's going, you're right. We have no charges against this guy. He should have been let go. And Festus is like, mm-hmm. And that's where we close tonight. But we thank you for Paul's wisdom. Thank you for him taking the opportunity here when he could have defended himself. Instead, he proclaimed you. And there's no better way to defend ourselves than to just talk about you, Jesus, openly with boldness and truth. It's reasonable. We thank you for the lesson we learned tonight, for the direction we received from you. That there may be times for us to stand in front of people that we never thought we'd stand in front of, but to not worry about their pomp and their position, but to understand that we are here as ambassadors of the most holy God and that we are the ones in charge of the room and that we have the truth, and that we have reason, and that we have wisdom for everybody in this room. That they're the captive audience, not us. Lord, help us to share our faith with those around us, to not be ashamed of the gospel, to not have faith only, but also works, that there might be fruit in our lives. Lord, we pray for opportunities, God, to share your gospel with whomever you bring us in front of, and we will do it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need prayer before you go, please come up. Be glad to pray with you. Otherwise, have a good rest of the night.